CD3 It has begun, said the hat from its box on the deck. What has, said Rincewind, the rule of sorcery. Rincewind looked blank. Is that good? Do you ever understand anything anyone says to you? Rincewind felt on firmer ground here. No, he said. Not always, not lately, not often. Are you sure you are a wizard? said Conina. It's the only thing I've ever been sure of, he said, with conviction. How strange. Rincewind sat on the luggage in the sun on the foredeck of the ocean waltzer as it lurched peacefully across the green waters of the Circle Sea. Around them, men did what he was sure were important nautical things, and he hoped they were doing them correctly because next to heights he hated depths most of all. You look worried, said Canina, who was cutting his hair. Rincewind tried to make his head as small as possible as the blades flashed by. That's because I am. What exactly is the apocalypse? Rincewind hesitated. Well, he said, it's the end of the world, sort of. Sort of? Sort of the end of the world? You mean we won't be certain? We'll all look around and say, pardon me, did you hear something? It's just that no two seers have ever agreed about it. There have been all kinds of vague predictions, quite mad, some of them. So it was called the Apocalypse. He looked embarrassed. It's a sort of apocryphal apocalypse. A kind of pun, you see. Not very good. No, I suppose not. Wizards' tastes in the matter of puns are about the same as their taste in glittery objects. Canina's scissors snipped busily. I must say the captain seemed quite happy to have it aboard, she observed. That's because they think it's lucky to have a wizard on the boat, said Rincewind. It isn't, of course. Lots of people believe it, she said. Oh, it's lucky for other people, just not for me. I can't swim. What, not a stroke? Rincewind hesitated and twiddled the star in his hat cautiously. About how deep is the sea here, would you say? Approximately, he said. About a dozen fathoms, I believe. Then I could probably swim about a dozen fathoms, whatever they are. Stop trembling like that, I'll nearly had your ear off, Canina snapped. She glared at a passing seaman and waved her scissors. What's the matter, you never saw a man have a haircut before? Someone up in the rigging made a remark which caused a ripple of ribald laughter in the top gallants, unless they were foxels. I shall pretend I didn't hear that, said Canina, and gave the comb a savage yank, dislodging numerous inoffensive small creatures. How? Well, you should keep still. It's a little difficult to keep still knowing who it is that's waving a couple of steel blades around my head. And so the morning passed, with scudding wavelets, the creaking of the rigging, and a rather complex layer cut. Rincewind had to admit, looking at himself in the shard of a mirror, that there was a definite improvement. The captain had said that they were bound for the city of Al-Khali, on the hubwood coast of Clatch. Like Ark, only with sand instead of mud, said Rincewind, leaning over the rail but quite a good slave market. Slavery is immoral, said Canina firmly. Is it? Gosh, said Rincewind. Would you like me to trim your beard, said Canina hopefully. She stopped, scissors drawn, and stared out to sea. Is there a kind of sailor that uses a canoe with sort of extra bits on the side and sort of red eye painted on the front and a small sail, she said. I've heard of Clatchian slave pirates, said Rincewind, but this is a big boat. I shouldn't think one of them would dare attack it. One of them wouldn't, said Canina, still staring at the fuzzy area where the sea became the sky. But these five might. 
Rincewind peered at the distant haze and then looked up at the man on watch who shook his head. Come, Un, he chuckled with all the humour of a blocked drain. You can't really see anything out there, can you? Ten men in each canoe, said Canina grimly. Look, a joke's a joke. With long curvy swords. Well, I can't see it. They're long and rather dirty hair blowing in the wind. With split ends, I expect, said Rincewind sourly. Are you trying to be funny? Me? And here's me without a weapon, said Canina, sweeping back across the deck. I bet there isn't a decent sword anywhere on this boat. Never mind, perhaps they've just come for a quick shampoo. While Canina rummaged frantically in her pack, Rincewind sidled over to the Arch-Chancellor's hatbox and cautiously raised the lid. There's nothing out there, is there? he asked. How should I know? Put me on. What? On my head? Good grief. But I'm not an Arch-Chancellor, said Rincewind. I mean, I've heard of cool-headed, but... I need to use your eyes now. Put me on. On your head. Hmm? Trust me. Rincewind couldn't disobey. He gingerly removed his battered grey hat, looked longingly at its dishevelled star, and lifted the Arch-Chancellor's hat out of its box. It felt rather heavier than he'd expected. The octorines around the crown were glowing faintly. He lowered it carefully onto his new hairstyle, clutching the brim tightly in case he felt the first icy chill. In fact, he simply felt incredibly light, and there was a feeling of great knowledge and power, not actually present, but just, mentally speaking, on the tip of his metaphorical tongue. Odd scraps of memory flickered across his mind, and they weren't any memories he remembered remembering before. He probed gently as one touches a hollow tooth with a tongue. And there they were. Two hundred dead arch-chancellors dwindling into the leaden, freezing past. One behind the other, watching him with blank grey eyes. That's why it's so cold, he told himself. The warmth seeps into the dead world. Oh, no. When the hat spoke, he saw two hundred pairs of pale lips move. Who are you? Rincewind, thought Rincewind, and in the inner recesses of his head he tried to think privately to himself. Help. He felt his knees begin to buckle under the weight of centuries. What's it like being dead, he thought. Death is but a sleep, said the dead mages. But what does it feel like, Rincewind thought. You will have an unrivaled chance to find out when those war canoes get here, Rincewind. With a yelp of terror, he thrust upwards and forced the hat off his head. Real life and the sound flooded back in, but since someone was frantically banging a gong very close to his ear, this was not much of an improvement. The canoes were visible to everyone now, cutting through the water with an eerie silence. Those black-clad figures manning the paddles should have been whooping and screaming. It wouldn't have made it any better, but it would have seemed more appropriate. The silence bespoke an unpleasant air of purpose. God, that was awful, he said. Mind you, so is this. Crew members scurried across the deck, cutlasses in hand. Canina tapped Rincewind on the shoulder. They'll try to take us alive, she said. Oh, said Rincewind weakly. Good. Then he remembered something else about Clatchy and slavers, and his throat went dry. You'll, um, you'll be the one they'll really be after, he said. I've heard about what they do. Should I know, said Canina. To Rincewind's horror, she didn't appear to have found a weapon. They'll throw you in a seraglio, she shrugged. Oh, could be worse. But it's got all these spikes, and when they shut the door, hazarded Rincewind. The canoes were close enough now to see the determined expressions of the rowers. That's not a seraglio, that's an Iron Maiden. Don't you know what a seraglio is? Um, she told him. He went crimson. 
Anyway, they'll have to capture me first, said Canina primly. It's you who should be worrying. Why me? You're the only other one who's wearing a dress. Rincewind bridled. It's a robe. Robe, dress, you better hope they know the difference. A hand like a bunch of bananas with rings on grabbed Rincewind's shoulder and spun him around. The captain, a hublander built on generous bear-like lines, beamed at him through a mass of facial hair. Ah, he said, they know not that we aboard a wizard have to create in their bellies the burning green fire. Ha! The dark forests of his eyebrows wrinkled as it became apparent that Rincewind wasn't immediately ready to hurl vengeful magic at the invaders. Ha! he insisted, making a mere single syllable do the work of a whole string of blood-congealing threats. Yes, well, I'm... I'm just, um... I'm just girding my loins, said Rincewind. That's what I'm doing, girding them. Green fire, you want? Also to make hot lead run in their bones, said the captain. Also their skins to blister and living scorpions without mercy to eat their brains from inside. And the leading canoe came alongside and a couple of grapnels thudded into the rail. As the first of the slavers appeared, the captain hurried away, drawing his sword. He stopped for a moment and turned to Rincewind. You gird quickly, he said, or no loins, ah? Huh? Rincewind turned to Canina, who was leaning on the rail, examining her fingernails. You'd better get on with it, she said. That's fifty green fires and hot leads to go, with a side order for blisters and scorpions. Hold the mercy. This sort of thing is always happening to me, he moaned. He peered over the rail to what he thought of as the main floor of the boat. The invaders were winning by sheer weight of numbers, using nets and ropes to tangle the struggling crew. They worked in absolute silence, clubbing and dodging, avoiding the use of swords wherever possible. Mustn't damage the merchandise, said Canina. Rincewind watched in horror as the captain went down under a press of dark shapes, screaming, Green fire! Green fire! Rincewind backed away. He wasn't any good at magic but he'd had a hundred percent success at staying alive up to now, and he didn't want to spoil the record. All he needed to do was to learn how to swim in the time it took to dive into the sea. It was worth a try. What are you waiting for? Let's go while they're occupied, he said to Canina. I need a sword, she said. You'll be spoilt for choice in a minute. One will be enough. Rincewind kicked the luggage. Come on, he snarled. You've got a lot of floating to do. The luggage extended its little legs with exaggerated nonchalance, turned slowly, and settled down beside the girl. Traitor, said Rincewind to its hinges. The battle already seemed to be over. Five of the raiders stalked up the ladder to the afterdeck, leaving most of their colleagues to round up the defeated crew below. The leader pulled down his mask and leered briefly and swarthily at Canina, and then he turned and leered for a slightly longer period at Rincewind. This is a robe, said Rincewind quickly, and you'd better watch out because I'm a wizard. He took a deep breath. Lay a finger on me and you'll make me wish you hadn't. I warn you. A wizard? Wizards don't make good strong slaves, mused the leader. Absolutely right, said Rincewind. So if you'll just see your way clear to letting me go. The leader turned back to Canina and signalled to one of his companions. He jerked a tattooed thumb towards Rincewind. Do not kill him too quickly. In fact, he paused and treated Rincewind to a smile full of teeth. Maybe... Yes. And why not? Can you sing, wizard? I might be able to, said Rincewind cautiously. Why? 
You could be just the man the Seraph needs for a job in the harem. A couple of slavers sniggered. It could be a unique opportunity, the leader went on, encouraged by this audience appreciation. There was more broad-minded approval from behind him. Rincewind backed away. I don't think so, he said. Thanks all the same. I'm not cut out for that kind of thing. Oh, but you could be, said the leader, his eyes bright. You could be. Oh, for goodness sake, muttered Kanina. She glanced at the men on either side of her, and then her hands moved. The one stabbed with the scissors was possibly better off than the one she raked with the comb, given the kind of mess a steel comb can make of a face. Then she reached down, snatched up a sword dropped by one of the stricken men, and lunged at the other two. The leader turned at the screams and saw the luggage behind him with its lid open. And then Rincewind cannoned into the back of him, pitching him forward into whatever oblivion lay in the multidimensional depths of the chest. There was the start of a bellow, abruptly cut off. Then there was a click like the shooting of the bolt on the gates of hell. Rincewind backed away, trembling. A unique opportunity, he muttered under his breath, having just got the reference. At least he had a unique opportunity to watch Kanina fight. Not many men ever got to see it twice. Her opponents started off grinning at the temerity of a slight young girl in attacking them, and then rapidly passed through various stages of puzzlement, doubt, concern, and abject gibbering terror, as they apparently became the centre of a flashing, tightening circle of steel. She disposed of the last of the leader's bodyguards with a couple of thrusts that made Rincewind's eyes water, and with a sigh vaulted the rail onto the main deck. To Rincewind's annoyance, the luggage barrelled after her, cushioning its fall by dropping heavily onto a slaver and adding to the sudden panic of the invaders because, while it was bad enough to be attacked with deadly and ferocious accuracy by a rather pretty girl in a white dress with flowers on it, it was even worse for the male ego to be tripped up and bitten by a travel accessory. It was pretty bad for all the rest of the male too. Rincewind peered over the railing. Show off, he muttered. A throwing knife clipped the wood near his chin and ricocheted past his ear. He raised his hand to the sudden stinging pain and stared at it in horror before gently passing out. It wasn't blood in general he couldn't stand the sight of, it was just his blood in particular that was so upsetting. The market in Sator Square, the wide expanse of cobbles outside the black gates of the university, was in full cry. It was said that everything in Ark Morpork was for sale, except for the beer and the women, both of which one merely hired. And most of the merchandise was available in Sartor Market, which over the years had grown, stall by stall, until the newcomers were up against the ancient stones of the university itself. In fact, they made a handy display area for bolts of cloth and racks of charms. No one noticed the gate swing back, but a silence rolled out of the university, spreading out across the noisy, crowded square like the first fresh wavelets of the tide, trickling over a brackish swamp. In fact, it wasn't true silence at all, but a great roar of anti-noise. Silence isn't the opposite of sound, it is merely its absence. But this was the sound that lies on the far side of silence, anti-noise, its shadowy decibels throttling the market cries like a fall of velvet. The crowds stared around wildly, mouthing like goldfish, and with about as much effect. All heads turned towards the gates. Something else was flowing out besides that cacophony of hush. The stalls nearest the empty gateway began to grind across the cobbles, shedding merchandise. Their owners dived out of the way as the stalls hit the row behind them and scraped relentlessly onwards, piling up until a wide avenue of clean, empty stones stretched the whole width of the square. Ardrothy Longstaff, purveyor of pies full of personality, peered over the top of the wreckage of his stall in time to see the wizards emerge. 
He knew wizards, or up until now he'd always thought he did. They were vague old boys, harmless enough in their way, dressed like ancient sofas, always ready customers for any of his merchandise that happened to be marked down on account of age, and rather more personality than a prudent housewife would be prepared to put up with. But these wizards were something new to our Drothy. They walked into Sator Square as if they owned it. Little blue sparks flashed around their feet. They seemed a little taller somehow. Or perhaps it was just the way they carried themselves. Yes, that was it. Ardrothy had a touch of magic in his genetic makeup, and as he watched the wizard sweep across the square, it told him that the very best thing he could do for his health would be to pack his knives, spices and minces in his little pack and have it away out of the city at any time in the next ten minutes. The last wizard in the group lagged behind his colleagues and looked around the square with disdain. There used to be fountains out here, he said. You people, be off. The traders stared at one another. Wizards normally spoke imperiously, but that was to be expected. But there was an edge to the voice that no one had heard before. It had knuckles in it. Ardrothy's eyes swivelled sideways. Arising out of the ruins of his jellied starfish and clam stall like an avenging angel, dislodging various mollusks from his beard and spitting vinegar, was Miskin Kobel, who was said to be able to open oysters with one hand. Years of pulling limpets off rocks and wrestling the giant cockles in Ark Bay had given him the kind of physical development normally associated with tectonic plates. He didn't so much stand up as unfold. Then he thudded his way towards the wizard and pointed a trembling finger at the ruins of his stall, from which half a dozen enterprising lobsters were making a determined bid for freedom. Muscles moved around the edges of his mouth like angry eels. Did you do that? he demanded. Stand aside, oaf, said the wizard. Three words which in the opinion of Ardrothy gave him the ongoing life expectancy of a glass symbol. I hate wizards, said Kobol. I really hate wizards, so I am going to hit you, all right. He brought his fist back and let fly. The wizard raised an eyebrow. Yellow fire sprang up around the shellfish salesman. There was a noise like tearing silk, and Kobol had vanished. All that was left was his boots, standing forlornly on the cobbles with little wisps of smoke coming out of them. No one knows why smoking boots always remain, no matter how big the explosion. It seems to be just one of those things. It seemed to the watchful eyes of Ardrothy that the wizard himself was nearly as shocked as the crowd, but he rallied magnificently and gave his staff a flourish. You people had better jolly well learn from this, he said. No one raises their hand to a wizard, do you understand? There are going to be a lot of changes round here. Yes, what do you want? His last comment was to Ardrothy, who was trying to sneak past unnoticed. He scrabbled quickly in his pie tray. I was just wondering if your honorship would care to purchase uh, one of the finest pies, he said hurriedly, full of nourish. Watch closely, pie-selling person, said the wizard. He stretched out his hand, made a strange gesture with his fingers, and produced a pie out of the air. It was fat, golden-brown, and beautifully glazed. Just by looking at it, Ardrothy knew it was packed edge to edge with prime lean pork, with none of those spacious areas of good fresh air under the lid that represented his own profit margin. It was the kind of pie piglets hope to be when they grow up. His heart sank. His ruin was floating in front of him with short crust pastry on it. Want a taste? said the wizard. There's plenty more where that came from. Wherever it came from, said Ardrothy. He looked past the shiny pastry to the face of the wizard 
and in the manic gleam of those eyes he saw the world turning upside down. He turned away a broken man and set out for the nearest city gate. As if it wasn't bad enough that wizards were killing people, he thought bitterly, they were taking away their livelihood as well. A bucket of water splashed into Rincewind's face, jerking him out of a dreadful dream in which a hundred masked women were attempting to trim his hair with broadswords and cutting it very fine indeed. Some people having a nightmare like that would dismiss it as castration anxiety, but Rincewind's subconscious knew being cut to tiny bits mortal dread when he saw it. It saw it most of the time. He sat up. Are you all right? said Canina anxiously. Rincewind swiveled his eyes around the cluttered deck. Not necessarily, he said cautiously. There didn't seem to be any black-clad slavers around, at least vertically. There were a good many crew members, all of them maintaining a respectful distance from Canina. Only the captain stood reasonably close, an inane grin on his face. They left, said Canina, took what they could and left. They bastards, said the captain, but they paddled pretty fast. Canina winced as he gave her a ringing slap on the back. She fight real good for a lady, he added. Yes. Rincewind got unsteadily to his feet. The boat was scudding along cheerfully towards a distant smear on the horizon that had to be Hubwood Clatch. He was totally unharmed. He began to cheer up a bit. The captain gave them both a hearty nod and hurried off to shout orders connected with sails and ropes and things. Canina sat down on the luggage, which didn't seem to object. He said he's so grateful he'll take us all the way to Alkali, she said. I thought that's what we arranged anyway, said Rincewind. I saw you give him money and everything. Yes, but he was planning to overpower us and sell me as a slave when he got there. What, not sell me, said Rincewind, and then snorted. Of course, it's the wizard's robes. He wouldn't dare. Um, actually, he said he'd have to give you away, said Canina, picking intently at an imaginary splinter on the luggage's lid. Give me away? Yes, um, sort of like one free wizard with every concubine sold, hmm? I don't see what vegetables have got to do with it. Canina gave him a long, hard stare, and when he didn't break into a smile, she sighed and said, Why are you wizards always nervous around women? Rincewind bridled at this slur. I like that, he said. I'll have you know that... Well, look, anyway, the point is... I get along very well with women in general. It's just women with swords that upset me. He considered this for a while and added, Everyone with swords upsets me, if it comes to that. Canina picked industriously at the splinter. The luggage gave a contented creak. I know something else that'll upset you, she muttered. Hmm? The hat's gone. What? I couldn't help it, they just grabbed whatever they could. The slavers have made off with the hat? Don't you take that tone with me. I wasn't having a quiet sleep at the time. Rincewind waved his hands frantically. No, 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 don't get excited. I wasn't taking any tone. I want to think about this. The captain says they'll probably go back to Alkali, he heard Canina say. There's a place where the criminal element hang out, and we can soon... I don't see why we have to do anything, said Rincewind. The hat wanted to keep out of the way of the university, and I shouldn't think those slavers ever drop in there for a quick sherry. You'll let them run off with it, said Canina in genuine astonishment. Well, someone's got to do it. The way I see it, why me? But you said it's the symbol of wizardry, what wizards all aspire to. 
You can't just let it go like that. You watch me, Rincewind sat back. He felt oddly surprised. He was making a decision. It was his. It belonged to him. No one was forcing him to make it. Sometimes it seemed that his entire life consisted of getting into trouble because of what other people wanted. But this time he'd made a decision and that was that. He'd get off the boat at Al-Khali and find some way of going home. Someone else could save the world and he wished them luck. He'd made a decision. His brow furrowed. Why didn't he feel happy about it? Because it's the wrong bloody decision, you idiot. Right, he thought. I've had enough voices in my head. Out. But I belong here. You mean you're me? Your conscience. Oh. You can't let the hat be destroyed. It's the symbol of... All right, I know. The symbol of magic under the law. Magic under the control of mankind. You don't want to go back to those dark eons. What? Eons? Do I mean eons? Right, eons. Go back eons to the time when raw magic ruled. The whole framework of reality trembled daily. It was pretty terrible, I can tell me. How do I know? Racial memory. Gosh, have I got one of those? Well, a part of me. Yes, all right, but why me? In your soul you know you are a true wizard. The word wizard is engraved on your heart. Yes, but the trouble is I keep meeting people who might try to find out, said Rincewind miserably. What did you say? said Canina. Rincewind stared at the smudge on the horizon and sighed. Just talking to myself, he said. Carding surveyed the hat critically. He walked around the table and stared at it from a new angle. At last he said, It's pretty good. Where did you get the octorines? They're just very good ark stones, said Spelter. They fooled you, did they? It was a magnificent hat. In fact, Spelter had to admit, it looked a lot better than the real thing. The old Arch-Chancellor's hat had looked rather battered, its gold thread tarnished and unravelling. The replica was a considerable improvement. It had style. I especially like the lace, said Carding. It took ages. Why didn't you try magic? Carding waggled his fingers and grasped the tall, cool glass that appeared in midair. Under its paper umbrella and fruit salad, it contained some sticky and expensive alcohol. Didn't work, said Spelter. Just couldn't seem uh, to get it right. I had to sew every sequin on by hand. He picked up the hat box. Carding coughed into his drink. Don't put it away just yet, he said, and took it out of the bursar's hands. I've always wanted to try this. He turned to the big mirror on the bursar's wall and reverently lowered the hat onto his rather grubby locks. It was the ending of the first day of the sorcery, and wizards had managed to change everything except themselves. They'd all tried on the quiet and when they thought no one else was looking. Even Spelter had a go in the privacy of his study. He had managed to become twenty years younger with a torso you could crack rocks on, but as soon as he stopped concentrating he sagged very unpleasantly back into his old familiar shape and age. There was something elastic about the way you were. The harder you threw it, the faster it came back. The worse it was when it hit, too. Spiked iron balls, broadswords and large heavy sticks with nails in were generally considered pretty fearsome weapons, but they were nothing at all compared to twenty years suddenly applied with considerable force to the back of the head. This was because sorcery didn't seem to work on things that were intrinsically magical. Nevertheless, the wizards made a few important improvements. Carding's robe, for example, had become a silk and lace confection of overpoweringly expensive tastelessness and gave him the appearance of a big red jelly draped with antimacassars. 
It suits me, don't you think? said Carding. He adjusted the hat brim, giving it an inappropriately rakish air. Spelter said nothing. He was looking out of the window. There had been a few improvements, all right. It had been a busy day. The old stone walls had vanished. There were some rather nice railings now. Beyond them, the city fairly sparkled, a poem in white marble and red tiles. The River Ark was no longer the silt-laden sewer he'd grown up knowing, but a glittering glass-clear ribbon in which, a nice touch, fat carp mouthed and swam in water pure as snowmelt. Of course, Aunt Morpork's citizens had always claimed that the river water was incredibly pure in any case. Any water that had passed through so many kidneys, they reasoned, had to be very pure indeed. From the air, Aunt Morpork must have been blinding. It gleamed. The detritus of millennia had been swept away. It made Spelter strangely uneasy. He felt out of place, as though he was wearing new clothes that itched. Of course, he was wearing new clothes, and they did itch, but that wasn't the problem. The new world was all very nice, it was exactly how it should be, and yet, and yet, had he wanted change, he thought, or had he only wanted things rearranged more suitably? I said, don't you think it was made for me, said Carding. Spelter turned back, his face blank. Um, the hat man. Oh, um, very yeah, suitable. With a sigh, Carding removed the Baroque headpiece and carefully replaced it in its box. We'd better take it to him, he said. He's starting to ask about it. I'm still bothered about where the real hat is, said Spelter. It's in here, said Carding, firmly tapping the lid. I mean the, um, the real one. This is the real one. I meant this is the Arch-Chancellor's hat said Carding carefully. You should know you made it. Yes, but... began the bursar wretchedly. After all, you wouldn't make a forgery, would you? No, not as... Um, such. It's just a hat. It's whatever people think it is. People see the Arch-Chancellor wearing, they think it's the original hat. In a certain sense, it is. Things are defined by what they do. And people, of course. Fundamental basis of wizardry is that... Carding paused dramatically and plonked the hat-box into Spelter's arms. Cogitum ergot hatto, you might say. Spelter had made a special study of old languages and did his best. I think, therefore, I am a hat, he hazarded. What? said Carding, as they set off down the stairs to the new incarnation of the Great Hall. I considered I'm a mad hat, Spelter suggested. Just shut up, all right. The haze still hung over the city, its curtains of silver and gold turned to blood by the light of the setting sun, which streamed in through the windows of the hall. Coyne was sitting on a stool with his staff across his knees. It occurred to Spelter that he had never seen the boy without it, which was odd. Most wizards kept their staves under the bed, or hooked up over the fireplace. He didn't like this staff. It was black, but not because that was its colour, more because it seemed to be a movable hole into some other more unpleasant set of dimensions. It didn't have eyes, but nevertheless it seemed to stare at Spelter as if it knew his innermost thoughts, which at the moment was more than he did. His skin prickled as the two wizards crossed the floor and felt the blast of raw magic flowing outwards from the seated figure. Several dozen of the most senior wizards were clustered around the stool, staring in awe at the floor. Spelter craned to see and saw the world. 
It floated in a puddle of black night, somehow set into the floor itself, and Spelter knew with a terrible certainty that it was the world, not some image or simple projection. There were cloud patterns and everything. There were the frosty wastes of the Hublands, the counterweight continent, the circle sea, the rimfall, all tiny and pastel-coloured, but nevertheless real. Someone was speaking to him. Um, he said, and the sudden drop in metaphorical temperature jerked him back into reality. He realised with horror that Coyne had just directed a remark at him. I'm sorry, he corrected himself. It was just that the world is so beautiful. Our spelter is an aesthete, said Coyne, and there was a brief chuckle from one or two wizards who knew what the word meant. But as to the world, it could be improved. I had said, Spelter, that everywhere we look we can see cruelty and inhumanity and greed, which tell us that the world is indeed governed badly, does it not? Spelter was aware of two dozen pairs of eyes turning to him. Um, he said, well, you can't change human nature. There was a dead silence. Spelter hesitated. Can you? he said. That remains to be seen, said Carding, but if we change the world, then human nature also will change. Is that not so, brothers? We have the city, said one of the wizards. I myself have created a castle. We rule the city, but who rules the world, said Carding. There must be a thousand petty kings and emperors and chieftains down there. Not one of whom can read without moving his lips, said a wizard. The, um, the patrician could read, said Spelter. Not if you cut off his index finger, said Carding. What happened to the lizard, anyway? Never mind. The point is, the world should surely be run by men of wisdom and philosophy. It must be guided. We've spent centuries fighting amongst ourselves, but together, who knows what we could do? Today the city, tomorrow the world, said someone at the back of the crowd. Carding nodded. Tomorrow the world, and, he calculated quickly, on Friday, the universe. That leaves the weekend free, thought Spelter. He recalled the box in his arms and held it out towards Coyne, but Carding floated in front of him, seized the box in one fluid movement, and offered it to the boy with a flourish. The Arch-Chancellor's hat, he said. Rightfully yours, we think. Coyne took it. For the first time, Spelter saw uncertainty cross his face. "'Isn't there some sort of formal ceremony?' he said. Carding coughed. "'I, uh, uh no,' he said. "'No, I, I don't think so.' He glanced up at the other senior mages, who shook their heads. "'No, we've never had one, apart from the feast, of course. Um, you see, it's not like a coronation. The Arch-Chancellor, you see, he, he, he leads the fraternity of wizards, he's... Carding's voice ran down slowly in the light of the golden gaze. He's, you see, he's, he's, the, he's the first uh, among equals. He stepped back hurriedly as the staff moved eerily until it pointed towards him. Once again, Coyne seemed to be listening to an inner voice. No, he said eventually, and when he spoke next, his voice had that wide echoing quality that if you're not a wizard, you can only achieve with a lot of very expensive audio equipment. There will be a ceremony. There must be a ceremony. People must understand that wizards are ruling. But it will not be here. I will select a place. And all the wizards who have passed through these gates will attend. Is that understood? 
Um, some of them live far off, said Carding carefully. It will take them some time to travel, so when were you thinking of? They are wizards, shouted Coin. They can be here in the twinkling of an eye. I have given them the power. Besides, his voice dropped back to something like normal pitch, the university is finished. It was never the true home of magic, only its prison. I will build us a new place. He lifted the new hat out of its box and smiled at it. Spelter and Carding held their breath. But... They looked around. Harkardly the lawmaster had spoken and now stood with his mouth opening and shutting. Coin turned to him, one eyebrow raised. You surely don't mean to close the university, said the old wizard, his voice trembling. It is no longer necessary, said Coin. It's a place of dust and old books. It is behind us. Is that not so, brothers? There was a chorus of uncertain mumbling. The wizards found it hard to imagine life without the old stones of Yu Yu. Although, come to think of it, there was a lot of dust, of course, and the books were pretty old. After all, brothers, who among you has been into your dark library these past few days? The magic is inside you now, not imprisoned between covers. Is that not a joyous thing? Is there not one among you who has done more magic, real magic, in the past twenty-four hours than he has done in the whole of his life before? Is there one among you who does not in his heart of hearts truly agree with me? Spelter shuddered. In his heart of hearts, an inner Spelter had woken and was struggling to make himself heard. It was a spelter who suddenly longed for those quiet days, only hours ago, when magic was gentle and shuffled around the place in old slippers, and always had time for a sherry, and wasn't like a hot sword in the brain, and above all, didn't kill people. Terror seized him as he felt his vocal cords twang to attention and prepare, despite all his efforts, to disagree. The staff was trying to find him. He could feel it searching for him. It would vanish him, just like poor old Bilias. He clamped his jaws together, but it wouldn't work. He felt his chest heave. His jaw creaked. Carding, shifting uneasily, stood on his foot. Spelter yelped. Sorry, said Carding. Is something the matter, Spelter? said Coyne. Spelter hopped on one leg, suddenly released his body flooding with relief as his toes flooded with agony, more grateful than anyone in the entire history of the world that seventeen stones of wizardry had chosen his instep to come down heavily on. His scream seemed to have broken the spell. Coin sighed and stood up. It has been a good day, he said. It was two o'clock in the morning. River mists coiled like snakes through the streets of Ark Morpork, but they coiled alone, Wizards did not hold with other people staying up after midnight, and so no one did. They slept the troubled sleep of the enchanted instead. In the plaza of broken moons, once the boutique of mysterious pleasures from whose flare-lit and curtain-hung stalls the late-night reveller could obtain anything from a plate of jellied eels to the venereal disease of his choice, the mists coiled and dripped into chilly emptiness. The stalls had gone, replaced by gleaming marble and a statue depicting the spirit of something or other surrounded by illuminated fountains. Their dull splashing was the only sound that broke the cholesterol of silence that had the heart of the city in its grip. Silence reigned too in the dark bulk of Unseen University. Except 
Spelter crept along the shadowy corridors like a two-legged spider, darting or at least limping quickly from pillar to archway until he reached the forbidding doors of the library. He peered nervously at the darkness around him and after some hesitation tapped very, very lightly. Silence poured from the heavy woodwork, but unlike the silence that had the rest of the city under its thrall, this was a watchful, alert silence. It was the silence of a sleeping cat that had just opened one eye. When he could no longer bear it, Spelter dropped to his hands and knees and tried to peer under the doors. Finally, he put his mouth as close as he could to the draughty, dusty gap under the bottomist hinge and whispered, I say, um, can you hear me? He felt sure that something moved far back in the darkness. He tried again, his mood swinging between terror and hope with every erratic thump of his heart. I say, it's me. Um, uh, Spelter, you know? Could you speak to me, please? Perhaps large leathery feet were creeping gently across the floor in there, or maybe it was only the creaking of Spelter's nerves. He tried to swallow away the dryness in his throat and had another go. Look, all right, but look, they're talking about shutting the library. The silence grew louder. The sleeping cat had cocked an ear. What is happening is all wrong, the bursar confided, and clapped his hand over his mouth at the enormity of what he'd said. Ooh! It was the faintest of noises, like the eructation of cockroaches. Suddenly emboldened, Spelter pressed his lips closer to the crack. Have you got the, um, um, patrician in there? Ooh! What about the little doggy? Ooh. Oh, good. Spelter lay full length in the comfort of the night and drummed his fingers on the chilly floor. You wouldn't care to, um, uh, let me in too, he ventured. Ooh. Spelter made a face in the gloom. Well, would you, um, let me come in for a few minutes? We need to discuss something urgently, man to man. Ooh. I mean, ape. Ooh. Look, won't you come out then? Ooh. Spelter sighed. This show of loyalty is all very well, but you'll starve in there. Ooh. Ooh. What other way in? Ooh. Oh, have it your own way, Spelter sighed, but somehow he felt better for the conversation. Everyone else in the university seemed to be living in a dream, whereas the librarian wanted nothing more in the whole world than soft fruit, a regular supply of index cards, and the opportunity every month or so to hop over the wall of the patrician's private menagerie. No one had ever had the courage to ask him what he did there. It was strangely reassuring. So you're all right for bananas and so forth? he inquired after another pause. Ooh, don't let anyone in, will you? Um, I think that's... Frightfully important. Ook. Good. Spelter stood up and dusted off his knees. Then he put his mouth to the keyhole and added, Don't trust anyone. Ook. It was not completely dark in the library, because the serried rows of magical books gave off a faint octarine glow caused by thaumaturgical leakage into the strong occult field. It was just bright enough to illuminate the pile of shelves wedged against the door. The former patrician had been carefully decanted into a jar on the librarian's desk. The librarian himself sat under it, wrapped in his blanket and holding waffles on his lap. Occasionally, he would eat a banana.
Spelter, meanwhile, limped back along the echoing passages of the university, heading for the security of his bedroom. It was because his ears were nervously straining the tiniest sounds out of the air that he heard, right on the cusp of audibility, the sobbing. It wasn't a normal noise up here. In the carpeted corridors of the senior wizard's quarters, there were a number of sounds you might hear late at night, such as snoring, the gentle clinking of glasses, tuneless singing, and once in a while the zip and sizzle of a spell gone wrong. But the sound of someone quietly crying was such a novelty that Spelter found himself edging down the passage that led to the Arch-Chancellor's suite. The door was ajar. Telling himself that he really shouldn't, tensing himself for a hurried dash, Spelter peered inside. Rincewind stared. "'What is it?' he whispered. "'I think it's a temple of some sort,' said Kanina. Rincewind stood and gazed upwards, the crowds of Al-Khali bouncing off and around him in a kind of human Brownian motion. A temple, he thought. Well, it was big and it was impressive and the architect had used every trick in the book to make it look even bigger and even more impressive than it was and to impress upon everyone looking at it that they, on the other hand, were very small and ordinary and didn't have as many domes. It was the kind of place that looked exactly as you were always going to remember it. But Rincewind felt he knew holy architecture when he saw it, and the frescoes on the big and, of course, impressive walls above him didn't look at all religious. For one thing, the participants were enjoying themselves. Almost certainly they were enjoying themselves. Yes, they must be. It would be pretty astonishing if they weren't. They're not dancing, are they? He said, in a desperate attempt not to believe the evidence of his own eyes. Or maybe as some sort of acrobatics. Kanina squinted upwards in the hard white sunlight. I shouldn't think so she said thoughtfully. Rincewind remembered himself. I don't think a young woman like you should be looking at this sort of thing, he said sternly. Kanina gave him a smile. I think wizards are expressly forbidden to, she said sweetly. It's supposed to turn you blind. Rincewind turned his face upwards again, prepared to risk maybe one eye. This sort of thing is only to be expected, he told himself. They don't know any better. Foreign countries are, well, foreign countries. They do things differently there. Although some things, he decided, were done in very much the same way, only with rather more inventiveness, and by the look of it, far more often. "'The temple frescoes of Al-Khali are famous far and wide,' said Kanina, as they walked through the crowds of children who kept trying to sell Rincewind things and introduce him to nice relatives. "'Well, I can see they would be,' Rincewind agreed. "'Look, push off, will you? "'No, I don't want to buy whatever it is. "'No, I don't want to meet her or him either. "'Or it!' You nasty little boy, get off, will you? The last scream was to the group of children riding sedately on the luggage, which was plodding along patiently behind Rincewind and making no attempt to shake them off. Perhaps it was sickening for something, he thought, and brightened up a bit. How many people are there on this continent, do you think? he said. I don't know, said Kanina, without turning round. Millions, I expect. If I were wise, I wouldn't be here, said Rincewind, with feeling. They had been in Al-Khali gateway to the whole mysterious continent of Clatch, for several hours. He was beginning to suffer. A decent city should have a bit of a fog about it, he considered, and people should live indoors, not spend all their time out on the streets. There shouldn't be all this sand and heat. And as for the wind... Ankh Morpork had its famous smell, so full of personality that it could reduce a strong man to tears, but Al-Khali had its wind, blowing from the vastness of the deserts and continents nearer the rim. 
It was a gentle breeze, but it didn't stop, and eventually it had the same effect on visitors that a cheese grater achieves on a tomato. After a while, it seemed to have worn away your skin and was rasping directly across the nerves. To Canina's sensitive nostrils, it carried aromatic messages from the heart of the continent, compounded of the chill of the deserts, the stink of the lions, the compost of the jungles, and the flatulence of wildebeest. Rincewind, of course, couldn't smell any of this. Adaptation is a wonderful thing, and most Morporkians would be hard put to smell a burning feather mattress at five feet. Where to next, he said. Somewhere out of the wind? My father spent some time in Kali when he was hunting for the lost city of E, said Kanina, and I seem to remember he spoke very highly of the soak. It's a kind of bazaar. I suppose we just go and look for the second-hand hat stalls, said Rincewind, because the whole idea is totally... What I was hoping was that maybe we could be attacked. That seems the most sensible idea. My father said that very few strangers who entered the soak ever came out again. Some very murderous types hang around there, he said. Rincewind gave this due consideration. Just run that by me again, will you? he said. After you said we should be attacked, I seemed to hear a, a ringing in my ears. Well, we want to meet the criminal element, don't we? Not exactly want, said Rincewind. That wasn't the phrase I would have chosen. How would you put it, then? Uh, I think the phrase not want sums it up pretty well. But you agreed that we should get the hat. But not die in the process, said Rincewind, wretchedly. That won't do anyone any good, not me, anyway. My father always said that death is but a sleep, said Canina. Yes, the hat told me that, said Rincewind, as they turned down a narrow crowded street between the white adobe walls. But the way I see it, it's a lot harder to get up in the morning. Look, said Canina, there's not much risk. You're with me. Yes, and you're looking forward to it, aren't you, said Rincewind accusingly, as Canina piloted them along a shady alley, with their retinue of pubescent entrepreneurs at their heels. It's the old hereditary at work. Just shut up and try to look like a victim, will you? I can do that all right, said Rincewind, beating off a particularly stubborn member of the Junior Chamber of Commerce. I've had a lot of practice. For the last time, I don't want to buy anyone, you wretched child. He looked gloomily at the walls around them. At least there weren't any of those disturbing pictures here, but the hot breeze still blew the dust around him, and he was sick and tired of looking at sand. What he wanted was a couple of cool beers, a cold bath and a change of clothing. It probably wouldn't make him feel better, but it would at least make feeling awful more enjoyable. Not that there was any beer here, probably. It was a funny thing, but in chilly cities like Ankh-Morpork, the big drink was beer, which cooled you down, but in places like this, where the whole sky was an oven with the door left open, people drank tiny little sticky drinks which set fire to the back of your throat. And the architecture was all wrong, and they had statues in their temples that, well, just weren't suitable. This wasn't the right kind of place for wizards. Of course, they had some local grown alternative enchanters or some such, but not what you'd call decent magic. Canina strolled ahead of him, humming to herself, You rather like her, don't you? I can tell, said a voice in his head. Oh, blast, thought Rincewind. You're not my conscience again, are you? Your libido. It's a bit stuffy in here, isn't it? You haven't had it done up since the last time I was around. Look, go away, will you? I'm a wizard. Wizards are ruled by their heads, not by their hearts. And I'm getting votes from your glands.
and they're telling me that as far as your body is concerned, your brain is in a minority of one. Yes, but it's got the casting vote then. Ha! That's what you think. Your heart has got nothing to do with this, by the way. It's merely a muscular organ which powers the circulation of the blood. But look at it like this. You quite like her, don't you? Well, Rincewind hesitated. Yes, he thought. Er, uh, she's pretty good company, eh? Nice voice. Well, of course. You'd like to see more of her. Well, Rincewind realised with some surprise that, yes, he would. It wasn't that he was entirely unused to the company of women, but it always seemed to cause trouble, and of course it was a well-known fact that it was bad for the magical abilities, although he had to admit that his particular magical abilities, being approximately those of a rubber hammer, were shaky enough to start with. Then you've got nothing to lose, have you? His libido put in, in an oily tone of thought. It was at this point Rincewind realised that something important was missing. It took him a little while to realise what it was. No one had tried to sell him anything for several minutes. In Al-Kali, that probably meant you were dead. He, Kanina and the luggage were alone in a long, shady alley. He could hear the bustle of the city somewhere away, but immediately around them there was nothing except a rather expectant silence. They've run off, said Kanina. Are we going to be attacked? Could be. There's been three men following us on the rooftops. Rincewind squinted upwards at almost the same time as three men dressed in flowing black robes dropped lightly into the alleyway in front of them. When he looked around, two more appeared from around a corner. All five were holding long, curved swords, and although the lower halves of their faces were masked, it was almost certain that they were grinning evilly. Rincewind rapped sharply on the luggage's lid. Kill, he suggested. The luggage stood stock still for a moment and then plodded over and stood next to Kanina. It looked slightly smug, and Rincewind realised with jealous horror, rather embarrassed. Why, you... he growled and gave it a kick. You... handbag! He sidled closer to the girl, who was standing there with a thoughtful smile on her face. What now, he said. Are you going to offer them all a quick perm? The men edged a little closer. They were, he noticed, only interested in Kanina. I'm not armed, she said. What happened to your legendary comb? Left it on the boat. You've got nothing? Kanina shifted slightly to keep as many of the men as possible in her field of vision. I've got a couple of air grips, she said out of the corner of her mouth. Any good? Don't know, never tried. You got us into this. Relax, I think they'll just take us prisoner. Oh, that's fine for you to say. You're not marked down as this week's special offer. The luggage snapped its lid once or twice, a little uncertain about things. One of the men gingerly extended his sword and prodded Rincewind in the small of the back. They want to take us somewhere, see, said Kanina. She gritted her teeth. Oh, no, she muttered. What's the matter now? I can't do it. What? Kanina put her head in her hands. I can't let myself be taken prisoner without a fight. I can feel a thousand barbarian ancestors accusing me of betrayal, she hissed urgently. Pull the other one. No, really? This won't take a minute. There was a sudden blur, and the nearest man collapsed in a small gurgling heap. Then Kanina's elbows went back and into the stomachs of the men behind her. Her left hand rebounded past Rincewind's ear with a noise like tearing silk, and felled the man behind him. 
The fifth man made a run for it and was brought down by a flying tackle, hitting his head heavily on the wall. Canina rolled off him and sat up, panting, her eyes bright. "'Oh, I don't like to say this, but I feel better for that,' she said. "'It's terrible to know that I betrayed a fine hairdressing tradition, of course.' "'Oh!' "'Yes,' said Rincewind somberly. "'I wondered if you'd noticed them.' Canina's eyes scanned the line of bowmen who had appeared along the opposite wall. They had that stolid, impassive look of people who have been paid to do a job and don't much mind if the job involves killing people. "'Time for those hair grips,' said Rincewind. Canina didn't move. "'My father always said that it was pointless to undertake a direct attack against an enemy extensively armed with efficient projectile weapons,' she said. Rincewind, who knew Cohen's normal method of speech, gave her a look of disbelief. "'Well, what he actually said,' she added, "'was never enter an ass kicking contest with a porcupine.' Spelter couldn't face breakfast. He wondered whether he ought to talk to Carding, but he had a chilly feeling that the old wizard wouldn't listen and wouldn't believe him anyway. In fact, he wasn't quite sure he believed it himself. Yes, he was. He'd never forget it, although he intended to make every effort. One of the problems about living in the university these days was that the building you went to sleep in probably wasn't the same building when you woke up. Rooms had a habit of changing and moving around, a consequence of all this random magic. It built up in the carpets, charging up the wizards to such an extent that shaking hands with somebody was a surefire way of turning them into something. The build-up of magic, in fact, was overflowing the capacity of the area to hold it. If something wasn't done about it soon, then even the common people would be able to use it. A chilling thought. But since Spelter's mind was already so full of chilling thoughts you could use it as an ice tray, not one he was going to spend much time worrying about. Mere household geography wasn't the only difficulty, though. Sheer pressure of thaumaturgical inflow was even affecting the food. What was a forkful of kedgeree when you lifted it off the plate might well have turned into something else by the time it entered your mouth. If you were lucky, it was inedible. If you were unlucky, it was edible, but probably not something you liked to think that you were about to eat, or worse, had already eaten half of. Spelter found coin in what had been late last night a broom cupboard. It was a lot bigger now. It was only because Spelter had never heard of aircraft hangers that he didn't know what to compare it with. Although, to be fair, very few aircraft hangers have marble floors and a lot of statuary around the place. A couple of brooms and a small battered bucket in one corner looked distinctly out of place, but not as out of place as the crushed tables in the former Great Hall, which, owing to the surging tides of magic now flowing through the place, had shrunk to the approximate size of what Spelter, if he had ever seen one, would have called a small telephone box. He sidled into the room with extreme caution and took his place among the Council of Wizards. The air was greasy with the feel of power. Spelter created a chair beside Carding and leant across to him. You'll never believe... He began. Quiet, hissed Carding. This is amazing. Coyne was sitting on his stool in the middle of the circle, one hand on his staff, the other extended and holding something small, white and egg-like. It was strangely fuzzy. In fact, Spelter thought, it wasn't something small seen close to. It was something huge, but a long way off. And the boy was holding it in his hand. What's he doing? Spelter whispered. I'm not exactly sure, murmured Carling. As far as we can understand, he's creating a new home for wizardry. Streamers of coloured light flashed about the indistinct ovoid like a distant thunderstorm. The glow lit Coyne's preoccupied face from below, giving it the semblance of a mask. 
I don't see how we will all fit in, the bursar said. Carding, last night I saw... It is finished, said Coyne. He held up the egg, which flashed occasionally from some inner light, and gave off tiny white prominences. Not only was it a long way off, Spelter thought, it was also extremely heavy. It went right through heaviness and out the other side, into that strange negative realm where lead would be a vacuum. He grabbed Carding's sleeve again. Carding, listen, it's important. Listen, when I looked in, I really wish you'd stop doing that. But the staff, his staff, it's not. Coyne stood up and pointed the staff at the wall, where a doorway instantly appeared. He marched out through it, leaving the wizards to follow him. He went through the Arch-Chancellor's garden, followed by a gaggle of wizards in the same way that a comet is followed by its tail, and didn't stop until he reached the banks of the Ark. There were some hoary old willows here, and the river flowed, or at any rate moved, in a horseshoe bend around a small newt-haunted meadow, known rather optimistically as Wizard's Pleasance. On summer evenings, if the wind was blowing towards the river, it was a nice area for an afternoon stroll. The warm silver haze still hung over the city as Coyne padded through the damp grass until he reached the centre. He tossed the egg, which drifted in a gentle arc, and landed with a squelch. He turned to the wizards as they hurried up. Stand well back, he commanded, and be prepared to run. He pointed the octoron staff at the half-sunken thing. A bolt of octorine light shot from its tip and struck the egg, exploding in a shower of sparks that left blue and purple afterimages. There was a pause. A dozen wizards watched the egg expectantly. A breeze shook the willow trees in a totally unmysterious way. Nothing else happened. Um, Spelter began. And then came the first tremor. A few leaves fell out of the trees, and some distant water bird took off in fright. The sound started as a low groaning, experienced rather than heard, as though everyone's feet had suddenly become their ears. The trees trembled, and so did one or two wizards. The mud around the egg began to bubble and exploded. The ground peeled back like lemon rind. Gouts of steaming mud spattered the wizards as they dived for the cover of the trees. Only coins, spelter and carding were left to watch the sparkling white building arise from the meadow, grass and dirt pouring off it. Other towers erupted from the ground behind them. Buttresses grew through the air, linking tower with tower. Spelter whimpered when the soil flowed away from around his feet and was replaced by flagstones flecked with silver. He lurched as the floor rose inexorably, carrying the three high above the treetops. The rooftops of the university went past and fell away below them. Ankh Morpork spread out like a map. The river a trapped snake, the plains a misty blur. Spelter's ears popped, but the climb went on into the clouds. They emerged drenched and cold into blistering sunlight with the cloud cover spreading away in every direction. Other towers were rising around them, glinting painfully in the sharpness of the day. Carding knelt down awkwardly and felt the floor gingerly. He signalled to Spelter to do the same. Spelter touched a surface that was smoother than stone. It felt like ice would feel if ice was slightly warm, and looked like ivory. While it wasn't exactly transparent, it gave the impression that it would like to be. He got the distinct feeling that, if he closed his eyes, he wouldn't be able to feel it at all. He met Carding's gaze. "'Don't, um, look at me,' he said. "'I don't know what it is, either.' They looked up at Coyne, who said, "'It's magic.' "'Yes, Lord, but, but, 
"'What is it made of?' said Carding. "'It is made of magic. "'Raw magic, solidified, curdled. "'Renewed from second to second. "'Could you imagine a better substance "'to build the new home of sorcery?' The staff flared for a moment, melting the clouds. The disc world appeared below them, and from up here you could see that it was indeed a disc, pinned to the sky by the central mountain of Celeste, where the gods lived. There was the Circle Sea, so close that it might even be possible to dive into it from here. There was the vast continent of Clatch, squashed by perspective. The rimfall around the edge of the world was a sparkling curve. It's... Too big, said Spelter under his breath. The world he had lived in hadn't stretched much further than the gates of the university, and he'd preferred it that way. A man could be comfortable in a world that size. He certainly couldn't be comfortable about being half a mile in the air standing on something that wasn't in some fundamental way there. The thought shocked him. He was a wizard, and he was worrying about magic. He sidled cautiously back towards Carding, who said, It isn't... Exactly what I expected. Hmm? It looks a lot smaller from up here, doesn't it? Well, I, I don't know. Listen, I must tell you. Look at the ram tops now. You could almost reach out and touch them. They stared out across two hundred leagues towards the towering mountain range, glittering and white and cold. It was said that if you travelled humwards through the secret valleys of the Ramtops, you would find in the frozen lands under Cory Celeste itself the secret realm of the ice giants, imprisoned after their last great battle with the gods. In those days the mountains had been mere islands in a great sea of ice, and ice lived on them still. Coyne smiled his golden smile. What did you say, Carding? It's the clear air, Lord, and they look so close and small... I only said I could almost touch them. Coyne waved him into silence. He extended one thin arm, rolling back his sleeve in the traditional sign that magic was about to be performed without trickery. He reached out and then turned back with his fingers closed around what was, without any shadow of a doubt, a handful of snow. The two wizards observed it in stunned silence as it melted and dripped onto the floor. Coyne laughed. You find it so hard to believe? he said. Shall I pick pearls from Rimmost Krull? Or sand from the Great Neff? Could your old wizardry do half as much? It seemed to Spelter that his voice took on a metallic edge. He stared intently at their faces. Finally, Carding sighed and said rather quietly, No. All my life I have sought magic, and all I found was coloured lights and little tricks and old dry books. Wizardry has done nothing for the world. And if I tell you that I intend to dissolve the orders and close the university, although, of course, my senior advisers will be accorded all due status. Carding's knuckles whitened, but he shrugged. There is little to say, he said. What good is a candle at noonday? Coyne turned to Spelter. So did the staff. The filigree carvings were regarding him coldly. One of them, near the top of the staff, looked unpleasantly like an eyebrow. You are very quiet, Spelter. Do you not agree? No. The world had sorcery once and gave it up for wizardry. Wizardry is magic for men, not gods. It's not for us. There was something wrong with it, and we have forgotten what it was. I liked wizardry. 
It didn't upset the world. It fitted. It was right. A wizard was all I wanted to be. He looked down at his feet. Yes, he whispered. Good, said Coyne, in a satisfied tone of voice. He strolled to the edge of the tower and looked down at the street map of Ark Morpork far below. The Tower of Art came barely a tenth of the way up towards them. I believe, he said, I believe that we will hold the ceremony next week at full moon. Um, it won't be full moon for three weeks, said Carding. Next week, Coyne repeated. If I say the moon will be full, there will be no argument. He continued to stare down at the model buildings of the university and then pointed. What's that? Carding craned. Um, the library. Yes, it, it's the library. The silence was so oppressive that Carding felt something more was expected of him. Anything would be better than that silence. It's where we keep the books. You know, 90,000 volumes, isn't it, Spelter? Um, uh, yes. About 90,000, I suppose. Coyne leaned on the staff and stared. Burn them, he said. All of them. End of CD 3